Good morning, everyone. Uh, you didn't know you were getting a light show today as well, did you? The screen's going on and off. We have a few bugs there. We're trying to, still trying to fix, so I apologize for that. Um, baptism is, uh, by the way, I better introduce myself. My name is Tim Hodge. Um, I uh, served as the pastor here for about 17 years, up to about a year and a half ago. And uh, it's just been wonderful to just see what God's done through our church family over the years. And uh, I'm now shifted over to a uh, national ministry role where I help um, our churches and the Caris Fellowship all across the country uh, um, take steps together and do all sorts of things in uh, collaboration and partnership. So some great stuff. I was going to say that baptism is, a, is an awesome uh, symbol of a decision made to follow Jesus. And as Jim was getting baptized, I was just remembering just the number of people over the years that I've met and that I've worked with a number of them as well, who after some years of some wasted living have made that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to follow after Jesus. And they, and they choose as adults a, a redirection with fresh zeal and they focus on the things that truly matter. And as Brett was being baptized... I was just uh, remembering what a pivotal time it was for me when I was about 15 years of age. That time in my life where, because I had asked Jesus into my heart as a five-year-old, and so that was something uh, much earlier, and, uh, and I understood that as much as a five-year-old can, and uh, I knew that, uh, that I was a follower of Jesus, and at the age of 12, I was baptized because I wanted to make a public demonstration of my decision to follow after Jesus. But in my mid-teenage years, that's where I had another decision to make. And it, it revolved around this basic question, and I don't know, do we have the screens working? We're getting them back working, so anyway, but I'll just read it out here. It revolved around this basic question, am I a Christian because of convenience or because of conviction? Am I a Christian because of convenience, meaning my family sort of goes to church and my, my family is connected in with different ways and, and sort of it's just easy to sort of connect into that, or am I a Christian because of conviction? Is this something that I've chosen to do? Is this a direction that I've chosen myself deliberately to say, this isn't the faith of my parents, this is, this is my faith, this isn't my parents' relationship with God, this is my relationship with God. And I was in my mid-teens when I made that decision to be all in for Jesus, to take him at his word and to commit my life to him wholeheartedly. And I remember that decision. I remember being, being up in my bunk bed. I, I slept on the top bunk because I was the younger brother. And uh, I remember being up there and there was a time where just with tears, just I remember just telling God, God, I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. It's a pivotal time for me. And, and though it's been hard at times, I have never, ever regretted that decision. And if you're here today and you've never taken the step of surrendering your life to God, it is the best decision that you could ever make. The best decision you could ever make. Now, during that, uh, that teenage stage in my life, uh, it's many years ago now, I keep getting older for some reason. Every year I seem to be getting older. I don't know how that happened. But while I was growing up in Australia, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't an avid reader. Um, school provided enough reading that I had to do, so I wasn't necessarily a, a recreational reader. Some of, anybody agree with that? Anybody just... Okay, all right. And got, by the way, guys are usually proportionally much higher with the hand raising there. I think the proportion of guys that actually read a book from cover to cover after finishing school is very low. <laughs> so, but there was one book, I remember one book that I read, apart from my Bible, but this book had a significant impact on me in that particular moment. 
And it was the life story of a man named Keith Green. Don't know if you've seen, heard of him before. He was a quirky, talented musician. He was a former drug user who turned into a passionate follower of Jesus. And Keith, as his story goes, he died at the height of his career. He was, he was well known and people loved what he was doing and loved his music. And he died in a tragic plane crash in 1982, along with two in his, of his children and nine other people. He was 28 years old. And while I wouldn't be exactly on the same page with all of his theology and viewpoints, his passion to follow after Jesus wholeheartedly was a message and a challenge that I needed to hear, especially at that particular time in my life. The book was called No Compromise. No Compromise. And the many songs that he wrote that I listened to during my teens and my 20s were themed on the practical realities of what it means to live a life of no compromise, to live a life that is all in for Jesus. And that idea of no compromise is is the general topic of what we're going to be looking at today in week three of our series that we're going through now called Dear Church, the Seven Letters of Revelation. And just a little bit of context about the book of Revelation. Some of us know it well. Some of us know how to place it a little bit there. But it's a fascinating book. 22 chapters. It has 404, sorry, 22 chapters, 404 verses, and just shy of of 12,000 words. It is a vitally important book in the Bible. All of them are important. But with Revelation, Revelation provides instruction and challenge that further explains and builds upon the rest of the teachings of the Old and New Testament. And I firmly believe that you can't understand the book of Revelation without looking at the Old and New Testament and the other teachings that are in that. And I also believe that you can't truly understand the rest of Scripture well without what we learn about in the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is also a book that provides tremendous hope and tremendous understanding. It gives us a picture. It gives us some understanding of what we have to look forward to. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in glances in the New Testament. But Revelation puts it in very vivid imagery about what things will be one day. And to ignore the contents of these last few pages of the Bible would be like, I heard this said once before, it would be like kind of ending the story of Little Red Riding Hood sort of right after the point where Grandma got gobbled up. Just stopping it there, without much hope or without any happy ending. Now, this book has some basic key sort of division points that helps us understand it better. Pastor Corey shared a little bit about this in week one, and I just want to mention um, a verse here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. You'll see there, um, John says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, or actually Jesus said this, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And what you have seen, this sort of describes the vision that John saw, and we see that in Revelation chapters 1, verse 11 to 19. The, the second part there, what is now, that is found in chapters 2 and 3, when we see the letters to the seven churches, and that's what we're talking about today and in this series. And then the third thing there, what will take place later, is where we pick up in the beginning of chapter 4, and that takes us all the way through to chapter 22. And if you notice on the beginning of chapter 4, it actually starts and says, after these things, and then it launches into everything else beyond that. And as I said, we're looking at the second section, the things which are. These chapters contain seven letters to seven churches, letters that are addressed from Jesus to each of those churches. 
And just a quick note, if I may, not everybody approaches the book of Revelation in the same way. Would you agree with that? Those that have been around the block a little bit in uh, Christian studies will recognize that you can't just pick up a Bible study on Revelation or watch a video on YouTube and, and, and it be like, hey, this has been very helpful to me because people are coming from all over the board when it comes to how they interpret or how they approach the book of Revelation. It's very different for different people. I'll give you a quick example here. Some people embrace what is called the preterist view. And that basically is from the Latin word praetor, which means past. And it basically is the idea that everything in the book of Revelation already took place. Um, people see that people that hold to the preterist view basically say, well, it was, it was just a, 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 a full of symbols and metaphors and imagery that related to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the reign of Nero. And so some people will say well, it was all in the past. And that's actually the view that is held by the Catholic Church. So if you interact with any revelation materials connected with the Catholic Church, you're probably going to experience the preterist view. A second view that is very common that you'll find is the spiritual view. The spiritual view is a view that it's, it, this is, the book of Revelation, is, it doesn't have any order and sequence to it necessarily. It, it's more of a symbol and a metaphor of the great struggle between good and evil. There's a lot of churches and a lot of people that, that have that view. The third view is called the futurist view. And that's the view that from chapters 4 all the way through to chapter 22, we're talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. We're talking about things that are yet in the future. And, and just know that's, that's where I personally land. That's where Karis Fellowship churches across the country and around the world, we land in that particular camp. However, when it comes to chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches... We don't see that as being something in the future. We see that as being something that's relevant for today. Now, there, not everybody agrees with that either. There's, a, there's another view I'll just mention here quickly. It's called the historical view. And that's the view that each church represents a, a different successive period of church history. What was the first week? Ephesus. It's the idea that there was this Ephesus stage back after the early church, and then there was Smyrna, and then there's, and it just goes on in sequence. But there's only a smaller group of people that hold to that. Most embrace the idea that these letters, even though they were written to actual churches located in actual towns by those actual names, you can go over to the Middle East, you can go over to Turkey, and you can travel around to the places where these churches were actually once thriving. And these letters, however, not only do they speak to the conditions back then, but they speak to the challenges that are faced by churches all the way through church history, all the way up to today. And we can learn something about what Jesus wants by looking at them. These seven letters follow a, a kind of a similar flow and format. And if you read through them, you'll sort of see it sort of repeats itself just with some different content. And our passage today, I've been given one particular passage of one of those letters. And today begins with the author and the address. This is basically, and you'll see it up on the screen here, Revelation 2.12, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And so there you have kind of this is who it's from and this is who it's to. And the author you will see is Jesus. If you want to sort of compare there, you can look back at chapter 1 verse 16 where you'll see Jesus described with that double-edged sword. So the letter is from Jesus and it says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And the word angel in Greek is angelos and it basically means a messenger. 
So it's, uh, it's usually interpreted to mean that this was written to the bishop or the pastor of that particular church, the one who was responsible to proclaim the message that was delivered. Then the text then moves on to the condition that's known. And in verse 13, we read this. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Isn't that a great description for a city? Wouldn't necessarily want that to be the, the, uh, the description of the city you live in. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Well, what are they talking about there? What's being indicated and if you look into things, you'll find that Pergamum, we, we, you can go to the city now, it's, it's got a different name, um, but you can still go and see the ruins of this particular city, and you can see the newer city that's down in the valley. But Pergamum was an impressive city. It was located less than 20 miles inland from the ocean there, from the Aegean Sea, um, which 20 miles, that's basically um, traveling to the Park City Mall from here. Um, and so it wasn't too far away from the coast, and it was an incredible, impressive, it was, it's been described as one of the greatest cultural centers of the Hellenistic or the Greek era. And you'll see up on the screen there, this is a picture that the archaeologists that have been excavating have reconstructed. This is what it would have looked like coming in to that particular region. It doesn't look like that today, okay? but that's what it would have looked like. And there's all sorts of massive structures there in the amphitheater. And, and on the right there on a platform, you'll see an altar there that we're going to mention in a moment. But it was an impressive city. It was, it was full of temples and theaters. It had a massive library with over 200,000 scrolls. That was a big library back then. 200,000 scrolls. And you see some of the remnants of some of the buildings that you can go and visit today. Pergamum distinguished itself as the primary center of worship for four of the greatest deities of the Greek culture. Perhaps you've heard of Zeus before. Have you heard of Zeus? Okay. And Zeus was one that was worshipped um, significantly in Pergamum. And then there was Athena and Dionysus and Asclepius. And in this city, there were massive temples, huge temples that were constructed for each of these deities, including the one that I mentioned briefly, the altar of Zeus. You're going to see it up on the screen there. It was removed from the site and it's now in a, in a museum, but this was a, this is actually much larger than it looks, but uh, it, was a, it's a, it was a huge place that was the center of um, worship for, for Zeus. And Zeus was, um, was one of the uh, primary deities. And this, uh, this, this uh, altar stood on the hill, so about 800, 800 feet above the city, and you could see it for miles around. And maybe that's part of the reason that this city is described as the, the place where Satan's city, or where Satan has his throne. One of the things we can observe is that the people in Pergamon were passionate about power. They liked the power of Zeus. They liked to tap into those kinds of things. But Pergamum was also known as the primary location where Asclepius, that's a nice name. Anybody looking for a name for a child? Uh, Asclepius, you can add the one to the list. But Asclepius there, you'll find that uh, he was worshipped as the Greek god of medicine. And the cult of Asclepius grew very popular and people would flock from all around the, the entire extended region in order to uh, go to their healing temples to be cured of their ills through various rituals and all sorts of different things, including the use of snakes, which are depicted in every image of Asclepius that you see. And you can see it up on the screen there. 
One of the things we learn from this is that the people in Pergamon were passionate about prosperity. They liked health and they liked wealth and they would pour a lot of energies into attaining those things as much as they could. But Pergamon was also known at that particular time as the center of emperor worship. Have you heard of emperor worship before? Emperor worship was very common in the Roman era, at least for a season there. And in, and in those days, many people would worship the most powerful political leader of the day, the emperor, and they would view them kind of as godlike. They, they would view them as the ones who were able to solve their problems and worthy of their full devotion. And you might think, well, that's just an ancient sort of mindset there. But I want to remind you that that was the mindset that drove the Japanese in World War II. The Japanese in World War II viewed their emperor as a god. And that drove a lot of those kamikaze suicide bombers were willing to do that because their emperor was a god in their eyes. What we see from this and other things is that the people in Pergamum were also passionate about politics. So passionate, in fact, that that became part of their worship, part of their structure. And from what we can ascertain about their practices and their rituals, we get all sorts of clues about that. I'll say one more thing here, and that is the people in Pergamum were passionate about pleasure. There's a lot of peas in there, isn't there? So it's like a Dr. Seuss book. You could do that. The people there wanted to do whatever they wanted to do, whether that is recreationally or even when it comes to sexually or whatever. There was, there was a certain permissiveness that was there, especially in conjunction with the various forms of worship that took place. And as a result of all those things we've just kind of glanced at, this, this was a city where Christian values, Christian values were in conflict with cultural values. Big time conflict. It was a place where being a follower of Jesus was not an easy path to take. And yet, as we read on here, Jesus affirms their loyalty even in the face of persecution and martyrdom. And he, and he shares this commendation, which you see in, in uh, five of the letters to the churches. You'll see this com- com- commendation there. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you. Now, while we don't know much about Antipas, um, according to Christian tradition, it was said that John the Apostle potentially ordained Antipas as being the bishop or the pastor of Pergamum. So he was one of the key leaders there at that particular time. And during the reign of the emperor uh, Nero, have you heard of Nero before? Was he a good guy? Friendly guy? Nice guy? No, he, he was one that enacted significant persecution across the region there. And the tradition account goes on to say that Antipas was killed during Nero's reign by being burned inside a brass bull-shaped altar. Does that sound like a good way to go? He was martyred because of his teachings and because of his practice and because of his allegiance with the person of Jesus. And yet, while, while they remained loyal, as you see on the top verse there, while they remained loyal to, to, to the truths of Scripture there, or the, the, the following of Jesus there, there was a problem from within, and Jesus shares that in the next section, where you see in verse 14, but I have a, a few complaints against you. It says, you tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. 
And some of you might be like, well, who's Balaam? I haven't heard of Balaam before or Balak. These are, if, you, if you go back into the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, you can read about Balaam and Balak. It's actually a cool story because Balaam at one point is, keeps on beating his donkey and eventually the donkey speaks to him and says, why are you doing that? <laughs> Pretty cool story there. Ver, um, simply stated... Balak, who was the king of a pagan nation of Moab back in the Old Testament days, he hired Balaam, who was a prophet. I guess he was a prophet for hire. And, and he wanted Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. He hired him to, to basically curse the nation of Israel. And uh, Balaam was willing to, but God wouldn't allow him. God kept on intervening and wouldn't allow him to do that. And so Balaam ended up going around sort of the side there and telling Balak, hey, here's how to cause Israel to stumble. Here's how to cause them to fall. What you want to do is you want to entice them to practice idolatry and to practice sexual immorality. What you want to do is take where they're at and their standards and you want to erode them and bring them down. And ultimately, that'll bring God's punishment on Israel. And ultimately, that's what happened. It worked. And Balaam and Balak show up a couple of times in the New Testament because of that. Balaam caused the people to embrace compromise and to lower their standards and values so that in the end, the people of Israel were just as corrupt and immoral as the pagan people, groups and cultures around them. It was a strategy of the enemy. To take something good and to then just gradually whittle it down until there's nothing of substance left. Verse 15, moving along here. Verse 15 says this, In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Now, Nicolaitans, we've heard of them before. They showed up in week one when it came to the letter to the church in Ephesus. And the Nicolaitans were the Balaams of the New Testament. So what Balaam did in the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans were doing in the New Testament. And unlike the church in Ephesus, week one, in week one, the church there hated the Nicolaitans. They didn't give them any space. They didn't give them any platform or any room. But what we read here is that unlike Ephesus, the church in Pergamum tolerated their false teaching and they compromised when it came to standards of morality and practice. And by allowing and, and by tolerating those heretical views on, on practice and sexuality, they were in many ways embracing the values of the culture over and above the convictions of their faith. So what's the message for us today from the book or the letter to Pergamum? In what ways do we face similar realities? It seems to me when you first approach a letter like this, it's like, wow, this is such an ancient letter and, and, and is there going to be some parallels here? But it seems to me well, the more you dig in that things are not as much different now than in the ancient city of Pergamum. People were people, sin was sin, choices were choices. There were different economic situations going on, different cultural threads going on without a doubt. Let me ask this question. Are there people today who are overly passionate about power in our culture, in our churches? Are there people today who are overly passionate about prosperity, seeking health and seeking wealth? You see that at all? Are there people today who are perhaps overly passionate about politics? Of course not. Why are you laughing? 
Why are you laughing? Are there people today who are overly passionate about pleasure and doing whatever they want, both outside the church and also inside the church? Yes. The church of Pergamum was guilty of compromise, and the church of today is also guilty of compromise, of of yielding to the standards of culture instead of standing firm on the truth of God's word. Too often... Too often, modern-day idols such as power and prosperity and politics and pleasure are celebrated and worshipped even more passionately than everything else. And I'm concerned, I've had this for a number of years, both in Australia and also here in the States, I'm concerned, it it, it raises concern in in my heart when I see or I hear professing followers of Jesus who get more fired up and passionate about politics than they do about people getting saved. I see that a lot. And when it's, when it's something political, they're like, man, I'm all in. And when it's like helping somebody cross that line from eternity separated from God to eternity with God, they're like, yeah, I'm not going to put too much effort in there. It's tragic. I think it relates to what Corey was talking about in Week one, where it comes to losing your first love. I'm concerned at the many churches and denominations who, whose standards of morality and ethics and sexuality simply kind of mirror the current values of our general society. We see that happening all the time, where there's a shift to convenient consensus conformity. Our, our church, our, our history, Karis Fellowship has a history in the, in the Brethren movement, the German movement from years and years ago. And in the 1880s, we split away, we broke away from the group that was called the conservative group. We broke away from that conservative group, became the Church of the Brethren. We broke away from them because we were those radical people who wanted to do things a little bit differently. And just in the last couple of years, that group that we broke away from has now embraced all sorts of views that said, you know what, when it comes to areas of morality and sexuality and other things, we're going to go with what the culture says. It's tragic. It's tragic. Our world today is so often operating based on the idea that that majority vote sets the standards of what is right and wrong. Is that correct? Is that how way it should be? No. I'm also concerned at the number of professing Christians who so often excuse sin as kind of like a preference or, 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 or it's just a little struggle here rather than confronting it as a problem. And whether it's the ancient church in Pergamum or whether it's our church here today in the United States, the solution remains the same and we see that on the next verse. What's the solution that's provided? Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The message there is that there's, there's this window of time to act. And if you don't act, things are going to get messy. And that was true back then. And it's true today. What, what does repent mean? Does anybody know what repent means? Repent basically means I'm heading this way. And it's the idea of a turnaround. I was going this way, which was not the way I should have been going. And I'm turning around 180 degrees and I'm heading in the way that I should be going. That's what repentance is about. That's the message that Jesus proclaimed from the very beginning of his ministry. When he first began his public ministry, what was his message? It was repent. 
You're heading in the wrong direction. You're following the wrong things. Even the religious elites of the day, he was telling them, you need to repent because you've messed up. You've got it wrong. You need to head in the other direction. You need to head in the direction that God instructs. You need to correct your course. And I believe that one of the ways to correct course is to commit to living a life of no compromise. Living a life of no compromise. I wonder what that would look like. I wonder what it would look like if we all committed to live a life of no compromise. And I was thinking about this and I wonder if Jesus were to write a personal letter to you today, what would he say in it? He wrote these letters to these churches. What if he wrote one to you? Had your name on top? What would he say? What are the things in your life that he would commend and say, good job? And what are the things that he would challenge you on and confront and condemn and needing to change? My question again that I wrestled with as a teenager, am I a Christian because of convenience or because of conviction? Am I living a life of no compromise or do I need to repent and redirect and reset my course? I want you to listen to this quote. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. I'm going to read it out. But No compromise is what the whole gospel of Jesus is about. For I tell you, no man can serve two masters, Matthew 6, in a day when believers seem to be trying to please both the world and the Lord, which is an impossible thing, when people are far more concerned about offending their friends than offending God, there is only one answer. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. That's what my friend Keith said years ago before he died. Are you all in with following Jesus? Many of you here have made a decision in your life to say, I am going to follow after Jesus. And I'm just wondering, are you all in? Are you, have you counted the cost? Are you, are you committed or are you just sort of, it's just convenient, it's just nice and it's just the way that we do things. I go to church because that's what my parents did or my grandparents did. Is it convenience or is it conviction? Because there's a big difference between those two. Are you willing to die to self in order to live for Jesus? Last week, uh, Pastor Corey made this statement. He said, persecution is to be expected and accepted as the cost of following Jesus. And I was reminded this, uh, this week as I was looking at a few things that according to current data, did you know that, we've got a graphic here on the screen, did you know, once the screen's come back on, did you know that 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month? Today, 322 Christians are killed, slaughtered for their faith every month. And then there's a whole lot of other things that you can see on the screen there that are going on as well. Do any of you ever travel on Route 322? You know Route 322? Honeybrook to, to Ephrata? I think most of us do at some stage because you kind of have to when you live around here. I want to I just suggest that perhaps as we travel along that road... We can see 322 and we can remember to pray for those of the world who are facing persecution. That we can pray for the families of the 322 per month who are killed for their faith in Jesus. And then perhaps as we drive along and as we think about that, 
We can take a moment to ask ourselves these questions that I already alluded to. Am I a Christian because of convenience or because of conviction? And another one here, am I living a life of no compromise? There are people in other countries that are dying for their faith in Jesus because they're told you need to renounce your following Jesus or we're going to kill you and they say, kill me. I wonder what would happen if that question was asked of us today here. Our letter wraps up today with these words and um, I'll wait for it to flash up and we're going to see if it uh, is something that we can read together. It's going to take longer this time, isn't it? There we go. Can we read this out loud? We do it quickly before it flashes off. Anyone? Oh, too late. (sighs) I knew that was going to happen. Join in if it shows up here again. Anyway, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. And I'm not going to get into the weeds there. There's some cool stuff to look into there. There's some stuff that commentators say, we don't really know what the white stone represents. We think it's this or we think it's this. One thing I will mention is that engraved with a name that no one understands, that's what's talked about when Jesus comes back victorious, that he has a name written on his thigh that no one else understands. And implied in there is the idea that unlike the worship of these false gods, that was taking place in Pergamum, there is a personal relationship with the God who Jesus is. That's sort of implied there. But what I want to do just now is I want to close by having us just listen to a two-minute prayer that is sung by this guy named Keith Green. And I don't know if it's going to show up for the whole video there on the screens, but we can hope. But uh, it was actually one, his, his wife shared some lyrics with him and he put it to music. And uh, this is a song that um, I've been singing this week as I've been preparing because when I was a teenager, this was some of the passion. This was some of what I was sharing. This was some of the desire that said, am I following from convenience or conviction? And things like this helped raise up the conviction in my life.